1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'll be reading all 10 verses. Hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom we, he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of to come. For those of you who have done so recently, and maybe even for others who have done it a more uh, longer time ago, reflect upon what do you look for when you look for a new church? I need to ask you this because when I go looking for a new church, it's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> um, it's not typical of what you might experience when you go looking for a church. So. I am curious to know what factors come to mind when you think about what you're looking for in a church. What is it that, you know, a lot of times it's, it's almost indiscernible to your own thinking, but what is it about a church that makes you say, yeah, I want to come back and worship with this church again and see if maybe this is a place for me? Or what is it about a church that says, oh, I'm not comfortable here, this is not the place for me? What kind of things do you evaluate? when you make those assessments. When you check polls or surveys that have come out recently, very consistently, the top factors that people evaluate when they look for a new church are these. First of all, friendliness, children's programs, worship music, and then the quality of the preaching. Those are things that people list as the things that they look for, the things that are most important to them when they try to decide whether this church is a good fit for them or not. One factor that I don't hear people talking about that I think is far more important is authenticity. Is this an authentic church? Now, I don't mean are the people authentic. I don't mean are the people real and sincere and they don't wear masks. I don't mean that kind of authenticity. What I mean is, is the church an authentic church, Has it, does it show the signs of the presence of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ? Does it show the signs of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church? That's what I mean by an authentic church. A local church can score very high on friendliness or score very high on children's programs or on worship music. 
or even quality preaching. But it can also, at the same time, have a failing score when it comes to that kind of authenticity. We're beginning a study today of these two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the capital in that day in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of Macedonia, which is what we now call the northern part of Greece. And we're going to see that Paul loved this church. And Paul speaks very highly of this church. And because of that, I think the church in Thessalonica can become a model for us to say, what is it that Paul loved about this church? What made it an authentic church? Because as Paul writes this, the Holy Spirit is guiding his words so that this is really God's evaluation of the church in Thessalonica. So I want us to think about what is it about this church that may also be true of us or maybe isn't true of us. First, let me give you some background. It's always helpful to kind of know the historical context of these letters that Paul wrote and to know a little more about Thessalonica. Everything we know about the church in Thessalonica comes from Acts chapter 17. This is in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And he's accompanied by Silas, his right-hand man, on the second journey, and also some other associates off and on. They come in and out during the trip during the, the, the missionary journey. But one of those key people is Timothy. And so Silas and Timothy are very important in the roles that they played in the church in Thessalonica. As we are introduced to, the, to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, Paul has just come from Philippi. That's what chapter 16 is all about. He's just come from Philippi. And he comes to Thessalonica and he does, he just follows his normal ministry strategy which was to go first to the synagogue. That was a principle that guided Paul's ministry throughout his missionary journeys to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. As we know, his primary calling was to the Gentiles, but he always started first with the Jews. And so he goes to the synagogue and he begins preaching. And that's a series of sermons I would have loved to have heard. He begins preaching how Jesus Christ was the Messiah promised by the Old Testament scriptures. And he showed from the Old Testament how the Messiah that they had put their hope in, that they were waiting for, how this Messiah had to come and die on the cross and be raised from the dead in order for the Messiah to redeem the people of God. That was the crux of his message. Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. The Messiah, the hope for all sinners. That was the theme of his sermon series that he preached in Thessalonica. Some, it says, and Dr. Luke tells us, some of the Jews in Thessalonica believed, get the idea, maybe a handful, but it says a great many of the God-fearing Gentiles believed. And so a church is formed. Matter of fact, he mentions that even a few of the leading ladies of the city, probably the wives of the, of the leaders of the city, became believers. And so from this group, the church in Thessalonica begins to form. But very quickly after that, the Jews in the synagogue who rejected Paul's message about Christ became very hostile. And they went out and they found some local thugs who could give them a little muscle to go with the movement. And they formed a mob and they went to the house of Jason, which it appears is where Paul and his associates had been staying. They went to the house of Jason in order to apprehend Paul 
but he wasn't there. And so they take Jason, poor Jason, they pull him out and they drag him before the city officials and they accuse him of being a part of this seditious movement following this Paul who talks about this Jesus who was to be the king in place of Caesar, trying to make them out to be treasonous. And so after Jason is released, what they do is that the, the, this new, just now forming church, they take Paul and Silas and Timothy and they take them by night in, in the cover of darkness to the edge of town and send them on their way so that they don't get apprehended by the town officials. Well, Paul then goes from there, as you follow on in chapter 17, Paul goes from there to Berea and then he goes to Athens. And then after he spends some time in Athens, he goes to Corinth. And Corinth is where he's at when he writes these two, this letter, 1 Thessalonians. He's in Corinth. And he had tried, he tells us elsewhere, he had tried twice. He was so concerned about this new church in Thessalonica. He tried twice to return to it, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. It wasn't the will of God that he returned. And so when he gets to Corinth, what he does is the next best thing. is He sends his, his protege, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on it, to see how it's on. You can, and you have to understand, for Paul, the church planter, he loved his, the churches he planted deeply. He was their, their first shepherd. And it's like a mother leaving her newborn baby. His ministry there was aborted. It was cut, cut off. He, was, he didn't get to do everything he wanted to do to get the church established. And as he left, the township officials are coming down on the church. And he, who knows what kind of persecution they had been facing during the time being gone. He didn't even know if there was even still a church there. Had it survived? He's deeply concerned for the church. And so he sends Timothy back, and this letter that he writes, 1 Thessalonians, is his response to the glowing report that Timothy brought back to him about the state of the church in Thessalonica. Timothy had told him that the church is doing really well. Look at uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and the love and reported that you have always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. He's extremely encouraged that the work is prospering even in his absence. And so he then makes a statement. I want you to notice, I think it's a key verse in chapter 1. He makes a statement that is actually stunning when you actually understand what he's saying. He begins in verse 2 by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. But then he continues the thought in verse 4 where he says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Literally in the original Greek, we know of your election by God. Now if you know New Testament, you know Paul's writings, you know that the word election has a very precise meaning. He explores it in great depth in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1. He's saying about these faithful believers in Thessalonica, I know that God has chosen you by his sovereign will alone before the foundation of the world to be his people. That you have been bought with the blood of Christ. Therefore, your sins, past, present, and future are fully forgiven that you have been adopted into God's family, that he will continue his work of sanctification in you, and he will make you holy, he will make you perfect, he will complete the work he's begun in you, and one day you will stand before his face 
forgiven, robed in the righteousness of Christ, living forever in his presence. I know this about you because you are of the elect. You are part of the invisible church. And any good theologian here is going to wince a little when Paul says that. It's like, wait, Paul, how do you know? Only God knows the heart. We can't look at another person's heart. We can be fooled by another person's life. But one of the downsides of believing and teaching and a strong doctrine of election, as Scripture presents it, is that we tend sometimes to say, well, we can't know. And we tend to unintentionally bring in a doubt about, well, no matter how much evidence of the Lord's work in somebody's life, you just can't know for sure because God only knows for sure who's elect. Well, that's not the, way, that's not the perspective of Scripture. John said he wrote his whole gospel so that you may know that you have life in Christ Jesus. We are to be sure of our salvation based on two things. One, a proper understanding of what Christ did to save you. And secondly, evidence of his work in your life on an ongoing basis. And that's what Paul's pointing to. He's saying, I am so sure. If you ask Paul, 100% sure, Paul? No. No, it couldn't be 100% sure. Only God's 100% sure. But I am so confident. I am so sure that you are of the elect. You are of the invisible church. You are genuinely born-again believers who will be completely saved by the redeeming work of Christ. He says it. And so then the question is begged at that point, on what basis, Paul? Where do you get that confidence from? How can you be so sure that these are the chosen people? That's where we get this list, I think, in this chapter of the signs of authenticity in a church. The signs that redemption has taken hold and that these people are being transformed by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. What are the signs of authenticity? And again, I'm not talking about the outward marks of the church. Historically, we talk about the marks of the church. Biblical preaching, a biblical administration of the sacraments, biblical church discipline. These are outward signs. But I'll tell you right now, I know of churches that show all those orthodox, historic, doctrinal, and practice signs, the marks of the church, and yet inwardly, spiritually, they're dead. Dead orthodoxy has always been a problem in the church. And so what Paul is dealing with here is not the outward marks of the church, but the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in the midst of the church. He's talking about it from a more experiential point of view. What has Paul experienced? What has he seen in the lives of the people of the church that gives him that confidence? And the first sign we're going to look at is going to sound familiar because we just spent several months looking at the book of James. The book of James was primarily talking about individual believers. And remember, he said over and over again that if the faith is authentic... If the faith is truly the gift from God that Scripture talks about, if it's authentic, then that faith will produce good works. True faith works, we said over and over again in the book of James. Well, Paul is making the same point about the Thessalonican church. He's saying, if this is an authentic church, then authentic churches work. They work hard. They toil. They sacrifice. An authentic church is not a country club. An authentic church is not a place where you go for a couple hours of reassuring, inspirational messages and, and get a cup of coffee and visit with people and then go on with your life. The kind of authentic church that Paul's talking about, the kind of authentic church that Thess the church in Thessalonica was, is a working church. It's busy, it's diligent, 
But the sign that Paul talks about speaks not so much to the outward work of the kingdom that the church is doing, but the reason why it's done. And that's what's important to recognize. The reason why it's done. That's the first sign of an authentic church. Work driven by faith, love, and hope. Look at verse 3. Paul says he constantly thanks the Lord as he remembers their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard that before, haven't you? Faith, usually in a different order. Faith, hope, and love. Those are Paul. Paul loved all the fruit of the Spirit. The, the fruit that are born by somebody who's truly born again by the Holy Spirit. He loved all the fruit, but he really loved faith, hope, and love. He said those are the greatest. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul is saying that he knows that these Thessalonian Christians, this Thessalonian church, is an authentic church made up of authentic Christians that they were chosen, God, chosen by God because of the way that they worked for the kingdom. Not just that they worked, but the way that they worked for the kingdom. He says the work, and the first word he uses for work there is a general word for any kind of work. He, said, he talks about the work that was driven by their faith. Because they believed in the word of Christ. They believed in the crucified and risen Christ. And they trusted in him as their Lord and Savior. Because of their faith, they worked. Secondly, he talks about their labor. And the word there is a different word in the original language. It's not the general word for work. It speaks more of toil. Sacrificial work. Painful work. Thorns and thistles type work. The labor that is driven by love. Love for Christ and love for his people and love for the world. Hard, sacrificial labor that is done motivated by love. And then thirdly, the steadfastness or the endurance that's driven by hope. Why were they consistently faithful even in the face of suffering and opposition? Why did they persevere? Why did they endure? Why did they remain faithful? Because they were motivated, they were driven by the hope that they have in Christ. That everything that we do for the honor and glory of Christ has meaning and significance and eternal value. Hope is a major theme, get used to it. It's a major theme in First and Second Thessalonians. It talks a lot about the second coming. Matter of fact, it's interesting. Every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ. Just as this one did. Look at verse 9 and 10 where he talks about them turning from God to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Hard, sacrificial labor that is driven by faith in Christ, love for Christ and for his people and love for the world and also by the hope of eternal life in the eternal kingdom. This is why you can't choose a church after visiting once or twice. You shouldn't, anyway. Because you have to hang out with the church a little while to figure out why they do what they do. Some churches you visit may not do any work. That tells you something. But even if it works very hard and works very well, what Paul is telling us here is that what matters is why is the church working? What's motivating? What's driving it? And you will find that some churches work hard, but it's driven more by guilt than grace. You'll find that some 
Churches are full of people that work hard, but it's driven more by competition and one-upmanship and pride. Or maybe it's driven by the pastor's charisma. Or maybe it's just driven by this worldly sense of accomplishment and success. Whatever it might be, there's all kinds of reasons why a church may be a working church. You need to hang out a while. You need to, to get to know the people and see, is it motivated by the same thing that the church in Thessalonica was motivated by? Faith in Christ, love for Christ, hope in Christ. Is that what drives people? Those of you who do work hard, and we have a lot of hard workers in this church, those of you who work hard and sacrifice and toil for the kingdom, this is a good opportunity to ask yourself, what motivates it? Am I motivated by guilt? Am I motivated by obligation? Am I motivated by what others are going to think of me? Or am I motivated by faith, hope, and love? Some of you aren't working. Some of you are sitting in easy seat and kind of receiving a lot from the church, but not giving and not doing much. And so again, I could think you ask the same kind of question. Why not? Why isn't faith, hope, and love? Why aren't those things driving you to say, I want to work for the kingdom? Well, that kind of brings us to some of the other signs of authenticity. The second sign is the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit that's evident in the life of the church. In verse 5, this is fascinating to me, especially as somebody who preaches and teaches the word. This is fascinating to me, what Paul says. He's here describing something that's kind of undescribable for anybody who's ever done any teaching of the word of God on any level. He's describing the experiential, supernatural aspect of teaching the word and preaching the word that he experienced when he was in Thessalonica. He says in verse 5, we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I, I can feel Paul's emotions as he writes that verse. He's saying it was such an exciting thing to teach the word and preach the word of God to you people because the Holy Spirit was in it. The word of God was being sown in the hearts of sinners and it was transforming people. And I was so full of power and passion and the presence of the Holy Spirit was so real because when I taught and preached the word, you guys received it and lives were transformed and there was electricity in the air. That was the kind of response that he got and it was so exciting from his end. The power and conviction with the, which he preached, he was feeding off of the responses of the people to the word of God because the Holy Spirit was working in hardened hearts of sinners, making them have new ears, new eyes, and new hearts to receive the word of God. Paul says, I knew it, I experienced it. It had to be real. Listen to how they responded to the word. Over in chapter 2, he describes it in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. If you've ever taught a Bible study or a Sunday school class or just shared scripture with a friend, then you know what Paul's talking about if you've ever seen people respond to it as though it's the very word of God, as though God is actually speaking to them. 
there is no more enthralling experience than to be used of God to communicate his word and to watch the Holy Spirit use that to change the heart, mind, and life of another sinner. Paul said, I experienced that. And the source, see, that's where the source, you talk about, okay, is the church motivated by faith, hope, and love to do hard work for the kingdom? Where does that faith, hope, and love come from? It comes from the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working together. When the word of God is faithfully, accurately explained and proclaimed to the people of God, when Christ, the risen Christ, the reigning Christ, is presented clearly from the word, what happens is that when hearts that are being prepared, plowed by the power of the Holy Spirit respond, you have this supernatural thing that only those who have experienced and can, can even try to articulate what it is. So again, that's why you can't just visit a church maybe on one or two Sundays and say, is this the right church for me? You need to hang out for a while. You need to see what role does the word of God play in the life of the church. Is the Holy Spirit producing among the people of the church this passion for the word, this hunger for the word, this deep desire to apply the word to life? That's what Paul saw in the church in Thessalonica. Which brings us to the third sign of authenticity. Imitating and exemplifying Christ-likeness. Imitating and exemplifying Christ-likeness. Paul gives a very clear description of the discipleship process in verses 5 and 6. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's discipleship. You took note of how we lived. You gauged our character, those of us who taught the word of God to you. And as we taught you the word, you looked to see how that translated into our lives so that you might understand how to translate it into your life. That's discipleship. He says, you became mimickers of us and of the Lord. Now you have to be careful with that partial verse there. I think Paul actually gives the full statement over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 where he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, the lordship of Christ is primary. In other words, if my life does not measure up to the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ, then you follow him, not me. Don't let me lead you astray. But if you're struggling to know how Christ's teachings, how Christ's salvation plays out in the life of a sinner, then yes, follow me, mimic me, imitate me, because I'm striving to do that. Imperfectly, yes, but I'm striving to do it day in and day out. And what Paul is laying before us there is just a general principle that every Christian, true Christian, authentic Christian needs to embrace is that you need to be mentored. A lot of individualistic, do-it-yourself type of Christianity out there. But in a good, healthy, vibrant church, you need to be mentored. And you have people who want to mentor and who want to be mentored. It's a byproduct of that hunger for the word that we talked about in the second sign. It's not enough just to hear the word being taught. You need to have it see somebody translated into the way they think, the way they speak, and the way they live their lives. And you need to get close to people. You need to get involved in people's lives in order to see that happening. 
How does this look in the life of a sinner saved by grace? What does this look like in practice? Have you ever tried to explain to somebody using only words how to tie a knot? It's next to impossible. You have to show them how to tie a knot. And so much of the Christian life is like that. And I feel like that as a preacher sometimes. That, that I'm trying to explain to you when I'm talking about some aspect of obedience to Christ and, and discipleship, you know, and I feel like I'm up here trying to tell you how to tie a knot. I can't do it from up here. You know, come hang out with me on a Tuesday afternoon for a while. Maybe then I can show you what that looks like in life. But see, that's a healthy church has mentoring and being mentored as a normal part of discipleship. Paul says, then, notice what happens then. He says, the mimickers in Thessalonica became modelers. Look at verse 7. So that you, after they imitated him in the Lord, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See, the other churches, the other Christians in the region, the other churches heard about what was going on in Thessalonica and said, oh, we want to be like that. They've got something there. The Lord is doing something there and I want it to be here, too. And I think that's the effect of any healthy, vibrant church. I'm always amazed at how many churches within our own denomination will go to our sister church in New York City, Redeemer Church, to say, how do you do it? The Lord's doing something through you. You're transforming the city in New York City. How are you doing it? You know, and sometimes we try to imitate it in the wrong way, but, but there are good principles about what they're doing that we can learn from. Same way with 10th Presbyterian in Philly doing some great work in the center city of Philly. And so we would, all the churches in the Philadelphia area would go there and beyond to say, what's, what's working there? What's the Lord doing there? It's, it's having imitated the Lord and being mentored in the Lord, then you become a model for others about what kingdom life looks like and service looks like. The joy of receiving and growing in the word of Christ must lead to the joy of helping other believers to experience the same thing. You see, that's evidence of the Spirit's work, is that if you have the joy of growing in the Lord, you have this hunger to help others find that same joy. It's like anything great and pleasurable in your life. You want to share it with others. It's a natural outworking of the work of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you, who is Paul to you? Who is mentoring you? Who is showing you how to translate the principles of God's word into the life of a sinner? And who's Timothy to you? Who is somebody who's not as far along in their spiritual maturity and understanding and application as you are that you're trying to help them move to the next step? Everybody should have a Paul and everybody should have a Timothy because that's what discipleship looks like in, the, in a healthy church. And it reminds me of what the Apostle John wrote when he wrote the third letter, his third epistle. Verse 4 of 3 John He's writing, keep in mind, he's writing to individuals whom he had mentored spiritually but were not his physical children. So he calls them his children, but he's talking about spiritual children. Listen to what he says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is the greatest joy of a born-again believer is to see God working through you to impart his word to somebody else and change their life and see that change stick. I have no greater joy, the Apostle John says, than to see that my children are continuing to walk in the truth. I don't know what you get joy or pleasure out of in life, but I guarantee there's nothing more pleasurable than that. 
the joy of being mentored and mentoring. The fourth sign, the last sign in the chapter, I think, of an authentic church is that an authentic church sounds forth the word. Look at verse 8. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The word of God had gone from this church and these believers out to the entire region and beyond. See, I remember what I said, Thessalonica was a very important city. The second most important city in all the area, what we now call Greece. And that whole segment of the, the, the greatest empire in the world at the time. It was a port city. It was a hub. It was a hub of commercial activity. It was a hub of cultural activity. It was a hub of transportation. And so when the church was faithful and vibrant and discipling and sharing the word, that the impact of their ministry went far beyond their local community. That's what makes me so excited about doing ministry in State College. We are living in a hub. We are, especially the academic educational center of the region and beyond. We are the hub of the culture of central Pennsylvania. We are the hub of the business life of central Pennsylvania. And so if we are vibrant and faithful and we are the kind of church that the church in Thessalonica was, if we become like that, if we, to the degree we are like that, the tremendous opportunity to sound forth the word of God to the far reaches of the world is amazing here. We take it too lightly, the opportunity that lies before us. A church that experiences the power of the gospel and the word of God being faithfully proclaimed and where the Holy Spirit is working, softening hearts, bringing conviction of sin, transforming minds and emotions and wills and, and actions and words, and where that all of the work that is being done is driven by faith in Christ and love for Christ and hope in Christ, and where people are embracing that wonderful calling to mentor others and be mentored, that's a church that will have huge impact. A church like that cannot keep a low profile. A church like that cannot be the best kept secret in State College or Center County. A church like that will have impact because word of mouth is by far the best advertisement. And churches like that have wonderful word of mouth because people that are spiritually hungry want what's going on there. Verse 9 Listen to what they were saying throughout the region. This is what Paul says in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from, from the wrath to come. I love it when a healthy, vibrant, Christ-centered, Bible-based church gets a buzz in the community. Where people are saying God is surely in their midst there's something supernatural going on there and it's because of the word it's because of the spirit and the effect that it has in transforming sinners by grace Aristotle used three Greek terms when he taught rhetoric and speech classes all over the place still use these same three terms when they talk about effective speech the three terms, there's more of them actually he used, but the three big ones he used were logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos is the message. A message 
that's powerful, but a message that's well-crafted and well-presented. Pathos is the emotional appeal and relevance of the message to the people, the passion of the speaker and the way that translates into the passions of the listeners. And the ethos was the credibility or trustworthiness of the speaker, the character, the lifestyle of the speaker. You put those three things together, an excellent message, powerful message, well presented, and a passion, an appeal to the passions, and a passionate appeal, along with a godly character, you've got a powerful presentation of truth. That's what Paul is describing when he says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I would ask you to pray. Pray about your own role in being a vital part of a healthy body of believers and how you measure up to the believers that Paul describes in Thessalonica. But pray for us. I believe we show many of these characteristics here. I do. But I also know we have a long way to go. And we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us. And we are not making the kind of impact that we should be making in our community and in our region. The opportunity is there for the taking. And the Lord has called us to reach this area with the light of Christ. This area that is drowning in so much darkness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us the gospel. It is the gospel that has changed us. It is the realization brought about by your Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead for our justification and that he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the good shepherd and he is coming back and that our hope is all in him. That is what drives us here. Lord, I pray that you would help us more and more to be undistracted by the loves and passions of this world and the sins that so easily entangle us. Lord, give us a vision for the work of the kingdom you've set before us and give us those hearts that are driven by faith, hope, and love to accomplish it to the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.